Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The names of candidates aren't all you can vote for in November. New England is also awash in ballot questions, and they're sparking debate. I mean, this is an effort of desperation. We're in a crisis. It saddens me that this is on the ballot. From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. From nursing numbers to open spaces, we'll dig into ballot questions from around our region. We'll also hear from young candidates who are hoping to get a seat in one of the country's oldest state houses. I want to show that younger people has the voice to do things in New Hampshire. And we'll discuss a new documentary that details the state of Maine's history, removing native children from their homes. People going from one world to another, they don't belong in either. They don't feel like they belong in either. Plus, we'll go on the hunt for mushrooms. It's not a beginner mushroom. If you don't know about mushroom stuff, you shouldn't. This is like, could be confused with other poisonous species. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks for joining us. And we're going to start with the November elections, which are coming up fast, but we're not going to talk to you about candidates. Yes, there are a number of important ballot questions for voters in our region to consider. There's nothing quite as exciting as, say, legalized marijuana on the ballot, but several of these items are just as contentious. Take the state of Massachusetts, where voters will give thumbs up or thumbs down to a proposal to limit how many patients can be assigned to each registered nurse in hospitals and certain other health care facilities. WBR's Martha Biebinger spoke to nurses about how they feel about this question. Brenda Pignoni, a staff nurse at Mass General Hospital, does not support the question. Why isn't the focus more on what they can do to help change that situation versus making everybody follow the same cookie-cutter solution when, when we don't need that? But Judith Schindel Rothschild, an associate professor of nursing at Boston College, does support the question. I mean, this is an effort of desperation. So here we are trying to make sure that there is equitable care across our entire system because there are wide, wide disparities. Debbie Burke, a chief nurse in Mass General, tells Martha she was disappointed that this decision is coming down to a ballot question. It saddens me that this is on the ballot. Is it on the ballot because there are some organizations that haven't listened to nurses? So I think it's sad that it's come to this and that we're going to ask the general public what they think about how we should staff. WBUR took a poll in late September. They found voters were divided 44 to 44 percent against the nurse staffing ballot, with 12 percent still undecided. Now, in Maine, ballot question one also deals with health care. It would create a universal home health care program to provide home-based assistance to people with disabilities and senior citizens regardless of income. Mike Tipping, a spokesperson for Maine People's Alliance and Mainers for Home Care, the group that's leading this effort to pass the ballot question, spoke to Maine Public Radio's Patty White about why he thinks the measure is necessary. We're in a crisis. You know, we're the oldest state in the country. We're getting older. And there are thousands of families that have to make impossible decisions how to care for a loved one. 
So part of this is about raising wages. It's about increasing training and accountability and making sure those workers are there for the future. And that's going to provide a lot of good jobs in a lot of places in rural Maine. But who will pay for this new home care program? Well, it would be funded by a new 3.8% tax on individuals and families with wages above $128,400 in 2018. All right, so here's Newell Auger, chair of the coalition called Stop the Scam that includes the Home Care and Hospice Alliance of Maine, the Maine Association of Community Service Providers, and the Maine Chamber of Commerce. The new tax that this referendum would impose would make Maine the highest income tax state in the nation. And the idea that we're going to hit 60,000 Maine families and an untold number of other small businesses is just going to be a disaster for our economy. When asked, all four candidates for governor in Maine say they do not support question one. In the state of Connecticut, question number two might be a bit hard for voters to wrap their heads around. It has to do with the sale of state land. Here's Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill to explain. Ballot question two has to do with the sale of state-owned properties here in Connecticut. This has been an issue going back for a few years where the legislature has essentially at the last minute tried to uh, sell off some state-owned land, and that's not gone over so well in the conservationist community here in Connecticut. Okay, so what's the current system? What does it look like now that might be changed? So the way it's supposed to work currently is that when legislators want to sell off state-owned property, they would raise a bill. That bill would get a public hearing. Presumably, people would come in, provide their comment. Legislators would take that comment under consideration and then make a decision whether or not they want to vote yes or no to sell this land. Oftentimes, what happens, though, is that at the 11th hour of the session, when everything's going crazy, there are bills flying everywhere, stuff gets added into other bills that basically has provisions to sell land. And it's all really, really complicated. But bottom line, those provisions don't get public hearings. A lot of people don't understand what these things mean. And land can get unloaded without there being a lot of oversight. Well, and it seems to make sense that if the state legislature is going to sell public land, that maybe the public should have a chance for for a hearing. Why don't they do that already? Right. So that's, I think, what this question is uh, trying to address. Uh, Legislators this session voted overwhelmingly uh, two-thirds in both houses of the General Assembly to put this question before voters to say that, hey, you know, if we want to sell this land now, what we're going to have to do is have a public hearing for each case of that. And if this is land that's owned by the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection or the State Department of Agriculture, we're actually going to need a two-thirds vote in both houses of the General Assembly to get this land sold. So that's the question that's going before voters right now, basically to protect that land and bring more transparency to this overall process. What's the downside? Why would people vote against this? Well, uh, legislators would say that, hey, trust us to make these decisions. Maybe at the last minute, a development project pops up. There isn't time for a public hearing to be had on this. So uh, just let us do our work and, you know, requiring things in the Constitution that would essentially dictate a supermajority vote is really, really difficult. And we don't want to have our hands tied on this. Is this expected to pass? We'll see. I mean, one of the things that's always an issue with ballot questions is particularly this one. The language is really long, really technical. People have already voted for all the other races, and there's a little bit of fatigue, so they might just ignore it completely, or they might be hit with this wall of text and just say, "I, you know, I, I'm voting no. I, I don't understand what this is. I, I don't trust government. I'm voting no on this. So we'll see. The other question on the Connecticut ballot would create a lockbox to protect transportation funds. In Rhode Island, the questions kind of look like a menu with price tags for each item. These are bond issues that voters will vote up or down. The first two are pretty simple. They ask for money for school buildings. But the third allocates $47.3 million 
for a wide variety of things called green economy and clean water. Here's Alex Kuffner from the Providence Journal to explain where all this money would go. It's going to go to a few different programs. Some of them are things that have been around for a while. We have open space grants. They go to cities and towns to, uh, to protect forests and farms and that sort of thing. There's some similar program for recreation that would go to parks for cities and towns. And then there are some new things. One is to shore up our old dams and also to shore up wastewater treatment plants that are under threat from rising seas. There's some for bike paths and, and some other things, too. So there's a wide range of things that deal with these broad range of issues having to do with the green economy, clean water, the environment. Why package all of these things that in some ways are so different into one big question with one big price tag? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And and I can just say that over the past probably 10 years, that's just been how it's been done. I went back and looked at some old bond questions on the environment and In the early 2000s and before that, they were generally broken up, and lately they've been joined together, so you've got these bigger packages. What's interesting is this is the third of three questions, and all of them are pretty big price tags. And I get the sense that this could be somewhat confusing to voters who might like one piece of this long list of things that they're voting on, but may not want to pay for something else, but yet are faced with a binary choice, either up or down. Is, is that seen by voters as a bit confusing? So I haven't heard that. I think that's a valid point. I think the logic from the point of view of our elected officials of putting them all together is that, I mean, there are certain things that people are pretty familiar with, like these open space bonds that I mentioned or the recreation bonds, the bonds that would go to finance stormwater improvements or or clean water improvements. They've they've gone before voters a number of times in the past. And and I'll I'll just say they're overwhelmingly approved. Every election that in recent memory, um, we're talking, you know, 60 to 70 percent approval every every cycle from their point of view that, that people understand that. So then I guess it's the new things that are on there. And I think if you're an educated voter, you'd, you'd see, you know, you'd understand what those things are. And maybe maybe the logic is just that if you support open space, you support clean water, then, yeah, you're going to support bike paths, too. You're going to support protecting our, our treatment plants so that Narragansett Bay is polluted if we get a really bad hurricane or something. And the sense is that this ballot question, as they have in the past, will pass pretty easily? Yes. I would be very surprised if it didn't. Finally, in New Hampshire, the two questions on the ballot are, well, they're a bit more confusing. In fact, if you want to go to our website, nextnewengland.org, you can try to decipher them. The first has to do with expanding the ability of taxpayers to sue the government if they think public funds are being misused. Anna Brown is director of research and analysis at Citizens Count, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization that promotes civic engagement. She described this question on NHPR's The Exchange this week. So basically what this first question says is it says, all right, anybody, any taxpayer has a right to say you're spending my taxpayer dollars unconstitutionally. So it's creating this broader right to sue the government. The judicial branch testified against it because they were concerned that this would really increase the number of lawsuits the state was facing. And they say we don't have enough judges to handle this. 
they also expressed some concern that it would give the judicial branch too much power because then basically any taxpayer could say this law is illegal, it's unconstitutional, challenge it. And then the courts are the ones that are saying whether or not the law flies, any law. So on the other hand, however, it passed almost unanimously. Yeah, it, was a, uh, it was very popular. 309 to 73 yeah. in the House and 22 to 2 in the Senate. Yeah. Because, and I think a lot of people look at that that case and say, well, yeah, they should have been able to say you don't get to spend my taxpayer dollars on religious schools or, or whatever the issue is. You, you, you have to follow the Constitution when you're spending my dollars. The second question has to do with an individual's right to privacy. Here's Anna again. The state constitution, as the federal constitution, protects your belongings, your person, from unreasonable searches and seizures, which basically means the government needs to get a warrant if they're going to do a search. When it comes to information and data, it's a little more gray. And the Supreme Court of the United States has had some rulings that say, okay, you got you got to get a warrant if you want to know someone's you know cell phone location or if you want to put a tracker on their car or if whatever. But there's this feeling that, uh, well, what if what if the government approaches Facebook and Facebook is a private company? Yeah. You've given them your data voluntarily, so they can do with it what they want. So this right of privacy basically says you you have to get a warrant if you want to get this private information. In New Hampshire, these ballot measures need a two-thirds majority in order to pass. That is, if anyone can figure out how to read them. Oh, and Vermont voters, you'll only be voting for candidates, not ballot issues, on November 6th. For more information about ballot questions in your state, visit nextnewengland.org. New Hampshire has one of the oldest state legislatures in the country. Not old as in founded in 1784, but old as in, well, the people there are old. The average age is 66. NHBR's Daniela Alley reports that both Democrats and Republicans are trying to change that. It's a cloudy Friday, and Sophia Wazir is walking through her Concord neighborhood. It's known as the Heights. It's a mix of older people, young working families, new immigrants, and longtime residents. She's knocking on doors and leaving behind flyers that say she'll help bring a new generation to the state house. Good afternoon, Mr. Silva. How are you? How are you doing? I'm glad to see you. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you for supporting. Yeah. um, This is Wazir's first time running for political office. She wants to be a state rep. And she surprised herself and a lot of people in her neighborhood when she won her Democratic primary by a two-to-one margin over a well-known incumbent. Your courage in doing this. Thank you. Because I, I want to be your voice. That's all it mattered to me. Wazir's 27. She's a mom to two daughters and pregnant with her third. She's a relatively new U.S. citizen. She moved to the States at 16 after 10 years in a refugee camp in Uzbekistan, after she and her family escaped from the Taliban when she was just six. Wazir remembers the help her family received when they moved to Concord from Uzbekistan. Volunteers would drive them to the grocery store or doctor's appointments. It meant a lot to me, you know. Back then, I think that was really something that was touching my heart. I said, when I become a U.S. citizen, I want to be able to do the same thing. If Wazir wins a seat in the New Hampshire House in November, she says she'll bring attention to issues like paid family medical leave, funding for public schools, and equal housing opportunities, all issues she's personally dealt with. I want to be the voice of young people because, sadly, the New Hampshire is aging and we don't have enough of younger people. So that I want to show that younger people has the voice to do things in the New Hampshire. With 400 state rep seats, it seemed like there are a lot of opportunities for young people like Wazir to get involved. But that's not the case. In New Hampshire, we like to say we have a citizen legislature. We do. 
but it's a very select citizen legislature when you only get paid $100 to serve or $200 a term to serve. That's Lucas Meyer. He's the president of the New Hampshire Young Democrats. He says it's a challenge to get people with young families or less flexible jobs to run because of the time commitment they have to make and how little they get paid. But this election year, both parties are trying to overcome those obstacles and get folks under the age of 40 in the legislature. Democrats are fielding 52 of those candidates and Republicans 47. It was, it was tough to be a young representative when there wasn't really any, um, there wasn't a network of other young representatives that could band together and push our ideas forward. Joe Sweeney knows what it feels like to be one of just a handful of young people in office. He's now the chair of the New Hampshire Young Republicans. He was just 19 when he served as state rep back in 2012. Colleagues mistook him for an intern until he got his official name badge. He says back then, there were about 10 other young people in office. So when it came to topics like student debt or bills addressing first-time homebuyers, most legislators didn't fully understand how things have really changed for people in their 20s and 30s. I think being a 21-year-old or a 22-year-old in 2018 um, is very different if you had that experience back in 1980. Um, I think the outlook's different. I think we know that we have student loan debt that nobody else can really compare to. Um, I know I have about $80,000 in student loan debt after my undergrad and my master's degree. But I just think at the end of the day that representation matters. One candidate Sweeney hopes gets a chance this November is Virginia Dry. She's the youngest candidate running for office in New Hampshire. I'm 19, a Republican and a woman, and I want to represent that in Concord. Dry graduated from high school last year. Now, she's working a part-time job, and she'll start online classes in January. She's running for a House seat in Sullivan District 1, which is one of the most solidly Democratic districts in the state. But Dry's staying optimistic that if she puts in the work, it might be possible to win and complete the plan she laid out for herself when she was just 12. That summer, she went to a camp, learned about writing bills and what it takes to get those to pass through a legislature. And I fell in love with the process, the formality of the political, of um, parliamentary procedure. And that's where I decided, I was like, I can do this in real life. So after doing some math, she decided the earliest she could pass bills in real life would be 19. But the fact that Dry is staying in New Hampshire makes her a bit unusual among her friends. A number have gone out of state for college. What they want to do is just not in the state. Keeping young people in New Hampshire has been a central concern among business leaders, politicians, schools, and community leaders. It's a big issue to tackle, Dry acknowledges. But she says, instead of just focusing on getting younger people to stay... Why not start with making the state house younger? For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Daniela Ali. Coming up, a new documentary tells the story of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Maine. That's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. The history of colonial Americans systematically taking land and disenfranchising Native people is well-documented history. But that's how it's often treated, as history. 
Throughout the 20th century and into this century, state and federal governments have systematically removed Native American children from their homes, placing them in boarding schools or in the homes of white families. In the 1970s, 25% of Native children around the country were removed from their families. And as recently as 2002 to 2015, Wabanaki children in Maine entered foster care on average five times the rate of non-Native children. These practices have left lasting impacts on families and Native communities around the U.S. A new documentary, Dawnland, explores this practice in the state of Maine and a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was held to investigate the removal of Native children from their homes. The Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission spent two years speaking with people from the Wabanaki Confederation, a group of five tribal nations, about the impact of these practices. Here's Dawn Neptune Adams, who was removed from her home at a young age and placed in foster care. She's now an environmental activist. You know, after, after being in my foster home for so long and not being able to even admit to being Penobscot or talk about it or, or be curious about it or anything, uh, I was like, yes, I'm finally Penobscot again. And I was going to my first powwow and uh, I did nothing but hide because I didn't know how to dance. So... I think that's the biggest thing for me is the loss of identity. How um, people going from one world to another, they don't belong in either. They don't feel like they belong in either. Here to talk with us about this documentary and what led to it is Esther Ann. She's a child welfare expert and the co-director of Maine Wabanaki Reach. She helped to establish the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Maria Gerard is a member of the Penobscot Nation. She's health and wellness coordinator for Maine Wabanaki Reach and a founder of Dawnland Environmental Defense. Esther began by telling us why this Truth and Reconciliation Commission was convened. So the Truth Commission was an attempt to bring some healing to the issue of forced removal of Native children from our communities. Native children were removed at a higher rate than other children through child welfare programs and policies. And even though this law was passed in 78, to mitigate that, Maine still had one of the highest rates of removal. So in 1999, we got together to see what we could do about helping caseworkers comply with the law. And in 2008, decided to embark on this process for three purposes, truth, healing, and change. The truth comes in people sharing their story, that truth-telling process of giving your story and giving voice to what has happened to you, whether you were a child in foster care, whether you lost your children to foster care, whether you were a caseworker that took children away. Everybody has a story to share. And that healing came in that truth-telling process. And the third goal of the commission was change, and that came in their report that they released in June 2015. For people outside the Native community, this story of children being taken from their homes at this much, much higher rate is something that is probably a shock or a surprise. But I can imagine, Maria, this is not a shock or surprise within your community. Can you tell us about the need for the work that the commission was doing, given the facts that Esther's laid out there about what's happened Well, I think we needed to look at how did we get into the position that we were in whereby children were being removed from their homes at this rate and that people were really 
aware that the history was invisible, that our issues and our situations were not well known about. So I'm a historian, and so a lot of my work goes back to history and the history of tribal-state relations in this area, and it has been contentious, you know, ever since Maine became a state, and it has built upon itself this path of trauma that has been inflicted upon the tribes in the state. And so while this, these facts were well known to the tribal communities and the people who were experiencing it, it was little known elsewhere. So a lot of the work that we started to do was to make sure that people had an understanding about history and historical trauma to try to wrap our minds around how we got to this place in time where children were just being removed from the community. Esther, can you talk about uh, about the struggles that, that you had in getting people to come forward and tell their stories as important as they were to this process? There were a lot of people who felt as though it would be difficult for them to do that, especially in front of, in some cases, a group of strangers. Early on, you know, we've had a lot of fears. Ever since we started talking about this process, we were really afraid that once people start sharing, they're going to struggle. And, you know, I remember once um, we said, well, if people start talking about this stuff, they're going to start drinking and drugging and hurting themselves. And when we sat back for a moment, we realized that we were already doing that, that keeping it inside was also causing difficulties and also causing struggles. And we knew from the example of Denise Altivator, who was the first person to share her story and share it very publicly in many different venues, she really was the role model for tribal people to show them that you can share this this pain and it becomes, it has less power over you the more you share it, when you share it in a supportive way with people who are going to give you all the comfort and the support and love that you need. I had wanted to ask you actually about Denise because that public testimony that's shown in the documentary, it's something that comes up over and over again. She says at least once that she's not quite sure why she's crying and you hear this from a number of the people who are giving their own testimony, that they're crying perhaps for the first time, they're not quite sure why they're crying. Esther, how did that strike you, this this idea that people are letting forth emotionally about this and are in some ways even confused where this emotion is coming from, telling these telling these terrible stories? It's no wonder that it's confusing because when something traumatic happens, the human mind is is really brilliant. And the mind will often bury that if it's too hard. And there are even cases where, you know, the mind often it can even split off into another another personality if what's happening to the body is too traumatic. So it was it was of no surprise to me that people don't know why they're crying. I, I know what scene you're talking about. I was providing Denise that support when she was doing that very public testimony. And I don't know if you can hear the audio on the film, but she she says, I don't know what's wrong with me. I never cry I never cry. I don't know what's wrong with me. It's like there's nothing wrong with you. And that is the message that we have brought to our tribal communities when we educate people about history and about trauma. 
that there is absolutely nothing wrong with us. It's easy to think that there's something wrong with you when you're dealing with the, you know, Native people have the highest rates of socioeconomic distress of any population. We are the victims of colonization. Maine, the state of Maine and this country has happened on our territory. So it's no wonder that when people start um, sharing that and, and on a cellular level start feeling that, that, that it's confusing and it's scary and it feels like you're going to lose your mind, but it's, that's not possible. That is not possible for us to lose our mind. And what Denise showed time and time again is that you can go to those places and then you can come back. And she said that every time she does it, it's, it gets a little easier and more people understand. You know, I, I remember when I was in college and I thought there was something very wrong with me. You know, there was not a lot of Native students on campus as it was. And in my class, I was the only Native person in my social work program. And I was the only one asking for extra help and asking for extensions on papers and asking for incompletes and, you know, all these reasons why I couldn't show up to school on time. And it's easy to think that there's something wrong with you when that's happening. And now that I've been able to learn about history and take a step back, I know that there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with Native people. This is exactly what a population would look like that has been targeted for destruction and has had relentless strategies and attempts at genocide for the past 500 years. And it's not over. It's every day there's still acts of genocide against Native people. So my mother would say that it's quite the opposite, that Native people are the most brilliant people on the planet because we're, it's like an upside-down triangle and we're at the bottom. You know, we've got the weight of everything on us and we're still here. We're still here. We still know who we are. We know our language. We know our ceremonies. We're in touch with our values. And we're still living our lives, thinking of the seventh generation ahead of us. Marie, I'm wondering how, as a, as a historian, what Esther just said resonates with you. Everything she said resonates with me. I couldn't agree more. We are just trying to make it in a, in a world where we have an exorbitant amount of barriers set up against us. And as she said, these aren't things of the past. These are things that are ongoing. When, when I first started working, doing the health and wellness work in the tribal communities, and we spent a good amount of time talking about history and understanding historical trauma, I remember that there was one elder who spoke up And she said that she didn't like that word, historical trauma. She preferred to use intergenerational trauma because by saying historical trauma, it made it seem as though everything were in the past, and it isn't. So everything that Esther says resonates with me. We have been up against so much from the theft of our our homelands and, and the destruction of our lifeways, the deforestation of the, the forest, the damming of the rivers, you name it. It's, it's been a long few hundred years, and I see the work that we are doing now as a step in a different direction where people are, are taking that knowledge of history and they're using it for the better. They're saying that they don't want to perpetuate that story any longer. And so now... Now we're moving in a new direction, and I'm feeling a little bit hopeful. Of course, I'm, I'm forever the eternal optimist, but 
I feel like the, the first step was to be able to tell our stories and to be heard. Esther Ann and Maria Gerard, I want to thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks. The documentary Dawnland will air on PBS's Independent Lens on Monday, November 5th at 10 p.m. For more information about screenings around our region, visit nextnewengland.org. Coming up, how fungi can help regulate climate change. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. You may have seen the headlines this week about high mortality rates of moose calves in our region. A study published in the Canadian Journal of Zoology reported that 88% of moose calf deaths from 2014 to 2016 were related to ticks. We spoke with Christine Rines in the spring of 2017. She's a wildlife biologist with the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. Rines is leading a four-year study to learn more about how weather changes and forest management practices affect the moose population. She told us why moose are susceptible to tick infestations and what ticks are doing to the animals. Moose did not evolve with ectoparasites. They evolved far to the north where it's cold and long winters. So they're not very good at grooming. So when the ticks get on them, they all pretty much survive. Moose don't groom until the itching becomes a problem. And by then, it's too late. They will have thousands of ticks on them. So in the presence of moose, and as moose densities increase, so do the ticks. The other thing that helps ticks is shorter winters. So when our snow does not come until late December, which has been happening much more frequently, the ticks will be able to get on moose from when they start questing in September until you get permanent snowfall. And so what's happening is our winters have shortened by three weeks um, in the last 30 years, and at the same time, moose densities have increased, and we've basically set the stage for lots of ticks, which has caused moose to decline. We've looked for all kinds of possible diseases. It's very rare to find anything wrong with these animals aside from the severe anemia and protein deficit caused by literally thousands of ticks. Upwards of 96,000 ticks have been counted on our moose. So they, they literally suck these calves dry and at a time of year when nutrition isn't exactly great. So we call April the month of death here because come April they have simply run out of protein in their bodies. They cannot replace their blood volume and they, the, the calves and occasionally adults start to die. You can find a link to our full conversation with Christine on nextnewengland.org. Fall in New England means weather that can change fast. A day that seems perfect for a hike, it can quickly turn dangerous. Nobody pays more attention to this than author Randy Minotaur, who's written Death on Katahdin and Other Misadventures in Maine's Baxter State Park. She's also the author of Death on Mount Washington. She warned us about the dangers of hiking in New England and told us what to do to stay safe. 
Randy, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. Now, your book, Death on Katahdin, details the events leading up to many of the 64 deaths that have been recorded there since 1933 in the park. Maybe you can start by telling us a story, one of the stories that stands out to you the most about the people who've perished while hiking there. Well, you know, there's a story about four young men who went up the mountain together, who were climbing. They started out on a warm fall day, and suddenly it turned into a tremendous blizzard, the kind of blizzard that you see once in maybe 20 years. When temperatures fell into beyond the single digits, down into the negative digits, and these Four guys were stuck on the side of the mountain on a ledge all night in this crazy weather. And remarkably, most of them got out. Only one of them died. It just, you know, sadly, hypothermia got him. But the others managed to find their way out. And the, the scariest thing was no one was looking for them because people assumed that they had made it back or that they were camping somewhere on the mountain and that they were all right. So no one was at, there was no, no wonderful main search and rescue team out looking for them, and they staggered back, pounded on the ranger's door, and that's how they got out alive. A lot of the stories, though, do deal with the, the rescue operations, the very difficult situations that people have to put themselves in in order to, to help people who have been stuck on the mountain. And you write about the death of Ranger Ralph Heath. This was some yeah. time ago, but this is, a, this is an important story. Tell us about Ralph Heath. The saddest stories are the ones where a ranger or a rescue person loses their life trying to save somebody else's. Ralph Heath happened to be the ranger on duty at Chimney Pond when the woman hiking with Margaret Avusik, who was stuck on the mountain, Helen Mower came back and told the ranger that she's stuck on the mountain, she can't, can't get down. She tried taking a shortcut. And there are no shortcuts down from Katahdin. You really have to stay on the trails. So the ranger couldn't sleep knowing that there was somebody stuck up there and the weather had changed. This is the curse up there that the weather can change on a dime. And uh, he went up looking for her. And he found her and actually made her as comfortable as he could. But then he himself got stuck on the mountain and died of hypothermia. And sadly, so did Margaret Avusik. And these stories are important because every time someone goes out hiking, maybe ill-equipped, maybe during a time when the weather is changeable, there is that real possibility that a, a search and rescue operation could turn deadly for the people who, who are conducting that search. That's a really important message to get across. That absolutely is, and I hope that in these books I am getting that across, that these people risk their lives to bring somebody else out of the wilderness. So in some cases, you know, someone has an accident, but some people do go off into the wilderness not paying attention to weather reports, not being well-equipped. And, you know, these people go out and risk their lives, and every once in a while one of them doesn't make it back. And it's, it's a heartbreaking situation when that happens. Maybe you can talk broadly about how hiking in New England might be different than in national parks elsewhere in the country, because we don't have the highest peaks necessarily. We don't have the hottest temperatures, but we do have some very specific uh, climate conditions here. What's different between New England parks and, and the rest of the country? 
Well, you know, as you say, people people come to New England to hike expecting a milder experience than they're going to find, say, on Angel's Landing in Zion National Park or out in Mount Rainier or, or one, one of those with a 14,000-foot mountain. They think it's going to be easier, and you know, it isn't. One of the big things is that you've got this weather coming down from the north, across the ocean from the east, sometimes up from the south all at the same time. And that can create storm systems that they just don't see out west. So we have different kinds of hazards up here, and people need to really be prepared for what they're going to find, even though their hike is only going to take them five or 6,000 feet up. The stories of people who die in terrible circumstances like this obviously capture the imagination. Can you give us some sort of context, though, about you know, what 60-some deaths over the course of, you know, nearly 100 years on Mount Katahdin means given the thousands and thousands of people who hike it every year. I mean, what's the percentage of people who really get in trouble? You know, the percentage is so small, it's almost not worth trying to compute. Generally, it's less than one person a year. And you know, when you look at it, on Katahdin, 100,000 people go to Baxter State Park every year, and maybe one and maybe not any, there will not come out just fine. Well, well maybe you could just leave us then with a, a bit of a checklist. What's some advice you give to individuals who might set off on a hike of Mount Katahdin or Mount Washington, especially this time of year in the fall when you might think it's beautiful to get up to the top of a mountain and see all the, all the foliage? What are some things you might ask people to, to think about before they go? Well, you know, you've really got to think about what you're carrying in terms of making sure that you have you know, a proper amount of food with you. Absolutely, water is very often the, the thing that really gets people, that they just didn't carry enough water with them and they become dehydrated and then you get a little crazy. Food, water, proper clothing, you know, bringing clothes so that you can, you can add layers as you go up. But even before you start up the mountain or start on really any hike, stop at the visitor center or the ranger station, talk to the rangers, find out what's going on there. As people, you know, today we really rely on our cell phones thinking that we're going to find out everything we need to know wherever we are. But you get out in the wilderness, there's no cell service. So there you are with no information. And the best information you can get is going to be from a ranger before you start out. The book is called Death on Katahdin and Other Misadventures in Maine's Baxter State Park. Randy Minotaur is the author. She's also written about Mount Washington and many other places you can go hiking in the U.S. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, John. This was great. When you're out in the woods this fall before the snow and ice take hold, you may notice that there's plenty of fungus among us. The rainy spring and the hot humid summer have produced a bumper crop of the fruiting fungi we call mushrooms. While they're lowly in stature, they play a critical yet little understood role in regulating the global climate, and researchers in Boston are trying to look into that connection. WBUR's Bruce Gellerman reports that the future of humanity may depend, in large measure, on the fate of fungi. Some say fungi, some fungi. Whatever you call them, they're among the most tenacious forms of life on or off the planet. They've been found growing outside and orbiting spacecraft thriving inside the ruins of the Chernobyl reactor, even in rocks in Antarctica. But it's on forest floors where fungi reign supreme. Biologically distinct from animals, plants, and bacteria, fungi are classified with their own kingdom. This is a perfect place for mushroom hunting. 
Decaying leaves and fallen twigs snap and crunch underfoot. The sandy loam soil anchors stunted oak and pine. I love Wellfleet. I mean, this is my favorite town to be in on the Cape in mushroom season. Wesley Price builds high-end homes on Cape Cod, but come fall, he forages the forest searching for mushrooms. The above-ground fruit of some species of fungi come in a wild variety of shapes, sizes, and psychedelic colors. That's a great mushroom. What is this? This still looks like a, a, a fan or something. Yeah, that's a velvet-footed pax. That's a Paxillus atrotomentosus. That's easy for Price to say. He's been studying and foraging mushrooms since college and is founder of the Cape Cod Mycological Society. Takes a unique personality type to want to walk through the woods and collect your food. That would be you. Yeah, and you. <laughs> and my father-in-law, Edward Gavarushko. This spot in Wellfleet is a jealously guarded secret that attracts in-the-know Eastern European mushroom hunters. Gavarushko is armed with a short knife and wicker basket. Kalpakolchty paruski. Oh, yeah. No, this is a uh, gypsy mushroom. This is a this is a great a great edible mushroom. I love this one. Russian kalpak kolchity. Yeah, Cortinarius caparatus. And this is good eating. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's not a beginner mushroom. If you don't know about mushroom stuff, you shouldn't. This is like, could be confused with other poisonous species. People can only eat a few types of mushrooms, but some species of fungi can eat just about anything, from nerve gas to plastics. Fungi and bacteria are nature's recyclers. They feast on dead and decaying plants and animals, transforming the fungi food into essential nutrients and elements plants require. I think we're just beginning to understand how critical they are. How so? Because of the ecological balance that they help maintain. If you have a healthy soil with plenty of fungi and microbes, you have a, the pieces that are necessary to support life. No fungi, no life. The fate of the Earth's climate literally hangs by threads produced by fungi. These ultra-fine filaments of cells help forests store climate-changing carbon in the ground. The complex process is not well understood by scientists, who estimate there are as many as 3.8 million species of fungi, but so far they've identified just 120,000. Six lifetimes wouldn't be enough to explore the kingdom of fungi, because there's so many species of fungi and so few people studying them. There's a researcher out of Boston University. She did research on fungi and climate change and still is ongoing in her lab. Pretty fascinating stuff. The real area where fungi are influencing climate is by influencing the amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. BU chemist Jennifer Botnagar says just a tiny pinch of soil can contain several hundred fungal species many that help regulate global warming emissions. The way they do it is by pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it below ground. Thanks to fungi, there's twice as much carbon locked in the ground as in the atmosphere. One square meter of healthy soil can contain 12,000 miles of tangled fungi filament. So essentially, the more fungi grow in soil, the more carbon dioxide can be drawn out of the atmosphere. Fungi are subterranean climate change warriors, minute chemical factories that produce an array of powerful enzymes. Professor Botnagar keeps hundreds of species gathered from around the world, stacked in petri dishes, ready to serve science. So this is our culture collection here in this walk-in cold room. Growing fungi in a lab is difficult because it's impossible to replicate the complex community of plants and microorganisms that communicate chemically in a forest. In nature, it's a delicate network that depends on the temperature of the soil. So climate change is really disrupting 
these communities and their ability to cycle carbon and their ability to store carbon, potentially. That's an area we're trying to understand more. BU professor Pamela Templer tries to make the complex fungi climate connection simple. She draws a picture of what scientists call the carbon cycle, the interaction of trees, fungi, soil, and sky. Templer is a forest ecologist. She's especially interested in what are called mycorrhizal fungi. These play a critical role in the carbon cycle for about 85% of plant life. If some alien came in and zapped all of the mycorrhizal fungi and they disappeared, I think we'd see a major shift in what plants we see around here. Today, we're the aliens. When we burn fossil fuels, we pollute the air with nitrogen, which rains down on forests and acts like fertilizer, upsetting the mycorrhizal fungi's ability to store carbon. The CO2 that's emitted from the fuels also creates a greenhouse effect. The atmosphere and soil heat up. When it's warmer, we see faster rates of decomposition of all those branches, roots, leaves, frogs, birds, whatever, anything that was alive that's on the forest floor, and an increase in how much carbon dioxide is leaving the soils, no longer being stored there, and boom, going back to the atmosphere. It's a forest-destroying, climate-disrupting feedback loop. Warmer temperature, less snowfall. Exposed ground in winter freezes faster, deeper, longer, stunting tree growth and the storage of carbon. Overall, we're seeing a greater increase in soil losses of carbon dioxide. The net effect is what we're trying to quantify right now. Preliminary results from Templar's experimental plot in the New Hampshire forest suggest that if scaled up for the entire New England region, the amount of carbon stored in fungi and forest soil would be reduced by 20%, further accelerating the climate change feedback loop and increasing the possibility of runaway global warming. Again, mushroom expert Wesley Price. We live on a very delicately balanced planet. We're really fragile. We're much more fragile than you think we are. If Earth has a future, lowly fungi, unseen, underfoot, and still not well understood, will play a crucial role in maintaining that delicate balance. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Bruce Gellerman. You can find our program wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and review us on iTunes. We appreciate it. You can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Talarski, And our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. We had help this week from George Thomas. Special thanks to WBUR's Martha Biebinger, Maine Public's Patty White, and NHPR's The Exchange. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, The Publix Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio. 